This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a couple of primary key texts this morning, Acts 2, and then we will end in Revelation chapter 1. When I first began to walk with the Lord, I was saved the summer after 10th grade, and I began to go to my mom's bookshelf and uh, pull off some books. My dad had a library in the basement, uh, but for some reason I went to my mom's library and I began to find books and one of those books that I got was a little book by the name by a man named J.B. Phillips, who actually translated the New Testament, the Phillips version, which is one I continually use and love and has helped me a great deal. But I saw this little book and the, the title of it caught my attention and so I took it down and I read it. The title of the book was, Your God is Too Small. He was writing that book with a burden for his generation, which was now 50, 60 years ago. His burden was that the God of his generation was not sufficient to meet the needs of his generation. He wasn't saying that God was insufficient. He was saying that the view of God was insufficient. That the generation had created this God who was too small to meet the needs around them. That we have created a God and we have put him in a box, but that box is not big enough for the complicated things that we deal with in our generation. And that box is certainly not big enough to send the revival that we desperately need. That their view of God was too small. And I come to you this morning throughout this series on the presence of God with really the same burden, but in a little bit of a different way. I'm not just burdened that our view of God is too small. I'm really burdened that our view of the church is too small. That we seem to lack the confidence we need in the significance of the church of Jesus Christ and what God intends to do with the church and the unshakable nature of the church of Jesus Christ. It is interesting to me that we tend to find a lot in the church people who are discouraged and overwhelmed and defeated by all that is going on around us and yet have forgotten the promise of Jesus in Matthew 16 that the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is an unstoppable force in the kingdom of God. The problem is not that the church does not have what what it needs to meet the needs of the generation. The problem is the church has too small a view of what God intends to do in the church. It is hard to have a view of the church that is actually too large. I mean, just think about the way in which God has communicated to us his love for the church. God says that we are the bride of Christ. Could you come up with any word more emotionally charged than the bride of Christ? The Lord saying, you are my bride, his affection, his passion, his love, his desire to see thrive and protected, his desire for everyone to see the glory of it. What an amazing thing that he would say, we are his bride. 
We are his family. That God's desire was to save you individually and make you a part of a family of God. He has chosen you. He has adopted you. He has brought you into the family of God by making God your father and the rest of us brothers and sisters in Christ. We are his family. We are the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus Christ ascended, and as he ascended, gifts descended. He left gifts and dispersed those gifts. And the reason is, is because no individual person on their own can accomplish the work that God intends to accomplish. It demands a church, a body. And so the way that is formed is every individual believer joining with a local assembly of believers, gifted by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, together make up the body of Christ. Which means the way in which Jesus moves in our generation, the way in which Jesus is known in our generation is through the ministry of a local church. We are the temple of God. God has chosen to dwell in us and in the church. God could have chosen to dwell in any way, but he has chosen to dwell in individual believers that together they might make Christ known. One of the most helpful ways to think of the church is think about it as as really an outpost of the kingdom of God. So Christ is exalted. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And how is it that his kingdom is made known? The answer is, is God has put little churches and little communities all over the world. And every one of those churches, I don't care how big, I don't care how small, exists to be an outpost of God's kingdom. It is through that church that they're receiving the power of God, that they're gifted by God, and it is through a local church that God is making himself known. Christ gave his life for the church, and that's why we must give our lives for the church. I mean, think about that. If Christ gave his life for the church, we should be giving our life for the ministry of the local church. Andrew and I support a number of parachurch organizations every year. Some of them we support monthly. Prince has started a number of parachurch ministries. We have started a school and a radio station and a pregnancy center and, Lord willing, a counseling center. And we believe those things are needed. In our church budget, we support probably over a dozen parachurch ministries all over the city because we think they're needed. But let me assure you of this. There is nothing that will ever take the place of the local church. God's plan has always been the church and every one of those ministries exists to support the church. But it is the local church by which God is making himself known. I think it's important for us in this individualistic day in which we live to understand that you are saved individually, meaning that no one else's faith will save you. Every individual person must see their own sin. They must see that because of their sin, they have been separated from God and they are broken in every possible way because of the consequences of that sin. And the only one that can heal the brokenness and the only one that can bring you back into right relationship with God is Jesus Christ. And Jesus has died that your sins might be forgiven and that you might be restored into a relationship with God by which you will find everything your heart longs for. This joy and the satisfaction and the life that can only flow through God. Life has no meaning outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That's a personal decision, every one of you. I loved what Jay said in his baptism a couple of weeks ago. I really sensed that someone needed to get saved and we made the call and someone got saved and there's probably someone in the room this morning that needs to get saved. That is an individual decision. But know this, God saves you individually and immediately intends to join you with the family of God in a local church. Because the body doesn't work when you're alone. You cannot fulfill the calling of God in your life or in the world outside of the ministry of a local church. All of God's plans revolve around the ministry of the church. The first line of our mission statement, our vision statement, really kind of clarifies that idea when we say that our vision is to be the visible presence of Jesus Christ in our community. Think about that line. Our vision as a church is to be the visible presence of Jesus in our community. The reason is because the way in which Jesus will be made known to our community is through the church. That's the only way. And so how how is this community going to know that Jesus is real and Jesus is powerful and Jesus can save their marriage and Jesus can save their children and Jesus is sufficient for every need they have. The only way that they will see that Jesus is real is when Jesus is made visible and Jesus is made visible through the ministry of the church. And this is why above everything else in our life, the church deserves our best, the best of our time, the best of our resources, the best of our talents. Even though, like I said, we support a lot of other ministries, there's nothing that deserves more of all of our best than the church of Jesus Christ because we exist to be the visible presence of Jesus in our community. What I want to do this morning is I want to help you to see why that's the case and God's plan to make the church the visible presence of Jesus. And I want to show you this by using one biblical image that's used from Genesis to Revelation to describe the visible presence of God. And it is the image of fire, fire. Now we've talked in the past few weeks about the image of water. And I would say there's probably no better comprehensive image of God's presence than that of water. You see it in Genesis one and two, where there is a river flowing into Eden, symbolizing that we only receive life from God's presence. And then four rivers that are going out from Eden to then make the presence of God go to the ends of the earth. And the Bible ends with the same vision in Revelation 21. Everything is about the presence of God that is flowing in and flowing out, spreading to the ends of the earth. Jesus really clarifies this in John 7, which I'm coming to believe, and I'm going to say more about this next week, maybe the most important vision for our lives. And that is when Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So that's the river flowing in. So your life every day is drinking from the abundance of everything that God has for us. And so the water of his presence is flowing in and out of you will flow rivers of living water. So God's vision for your life is that you are sustained and you are finding life and joy in his presence and then flowing out of you is not your life, but his life. And so that image of water is really significant, but there is another image in scripture that clarifies more of God's visible presence. And it is the image of fire. And we see all the way throughout the Bible, the way in which God made himself known through fire. Now, the most familiar one to you, and you might have already thought about this, is the one in Acts 2. Look there at Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. It says this. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We tend to come to Acts 2 and we wonder why there was this fire that was coming down from heaven. But that was not lost. The significance of that, the image of that was not lost on the 120 in the upper room praying for the Spirit of God to come. They knew the Old Testament and they knew... That when the fire comes, it is a symbol that God himself has come. That is the presence of God coming in the symbol of fire. And so when they came and had that experience in Acts 2, they were aware of what was happening. God was making it known that his presence has come to dwell in them. Because fire represents the presence of God. So I just want to walk you through a little bit, and you can write some of these down, the way in which God has met people through fire and how they have come to experience his visible presence in the fire. The first time we really see this is with Adam and Eve. And so Adam and Eve living and sustained by God's presence in a perfect relationship with God, yet because of their sin were removed from God's presence. And look at what it says as they were moved in Genesis 3, 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, so there's these angels, and flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so here's this vision of Adam and Eve having been removed from God's presence. And the reason these angels were standing here with swords of fire is because they were communicating the unapproachable nature of God's presence. That God could not be approached because of their sin. There had to be a mediator to allow them to go into the presence of God. But the fire of God's presence, the angels holding those swords, communicating that this is God's presence. And you cannot just come casually and light you and lightly into his presence. He was communicating his presence through the fire. Abraham had the same type of moment. He was called in Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis chapter 15, he had a vision. And in that vision, he saw the fire of God's presence. His vision in Genesis 15 was of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. He got a vision of the awesome presence of God. And the reason the fire was coming in that vision is because God was making himself known to Abraham that I am with you. And the means by which you will accomplish my purposes are only my presence. He was saying, Abraham, you have no hope without my presence. I will fulfill my work by my presence. Moses met God in the fire. In Exodus chapter 3, the calling of Moses in this supernatural event, which we've referenced in the last few weeks, that it was there that Moses met God in the burning bush. It was there that God spoke to him through the fire. It was there that Moses took off his shoes because he was walking on holy ground. How did he know that? Well, he knew that because of the fire of God's presence. You say, why was the fire necessary? Why couldn't the bush just speak without the fire? Because the fire made it clear to Moses that God was there. That it was God that was speaking. He wasn't hearing some other voice. God had shown up. God was in that moment. That moment was holy because of the presence of God appearing in fire. And then you have Moses leading his people out. And as they come out of Egypt, they stop at Mount Sinai where they will receive the law and Moses will go up and down on the mountain to meet with God. 
But it says this, that when he gathered his people at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 says this, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so why is it that when God brought his people to Mount Sinai, fire descended upon the mountain so they would know that his presence was there? That was God making himself visible in the fire. And they would leave from there. And the way they would be led is that same fire of God's presence would lead them at night by this pillar of fire that would allow them to move moment by moment, knowing that every step they took, they took with his presence. God then called Moses to build a tabernacle. Why? Because God wanted to meet with them. It is the tabernacle in which God's presence would dwell as they wandered through the wilderness. But listen to this at the dedication of the tabernacle, Exodus 40, 34. It says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle like a cloud. And all of a sudden, there's this picture of that same fire and that same smoke and that, that same manifestation of God's presence coming up on the tabernacle. Why? Because in that moment, God wanted them to know this is not just a tent. This is the tent of my presence. And the way that they knew God's presence was there is because the fire descended upon it. And then it was time to, to ordain priests. And so they chose Aaron. In Leviticus 9, it says this. It says that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And as Aaron made a sacrifice, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Why? Because God was saying, I'm here. I'm here. My presence is here. Solomon would then dedicate the temple. He would build a more permanent, in a sense, residence for the Lord. His presence would dwell then in the temple. And when the temple was dedicated, it tells us in 2 Chronicles 7, that when Solomon dedicated the temple, fire came down from heaven. In every one of these moments, God wanted to make the people know that he was there. And the way he made himself visible was always with fire. One of the greatest examples of this is in one of the greatest moments of the Old Testament in 1 Kings 18 with the prophet Elijah. You may remember this moment. So Elijah came to be a prophet in some of the worst days in all of the Old Testament. Every single king was doing what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And you thought, well, the next guy couldn't be as bad as that previous guy. But every single one was worse and worse. And then all of a sudden Ahab shows up and there's no way he can be worse than his father, but he was worse than his father. And then he married evil Jezebel and things got dramatically worse because she came in and brought Baal worship into the nation. And so by the time Elijah shows up on the scene, all of the prophets of God are hiding because Jezebel wants to kill them all. And Elijah thinks he's the only prophet left and the land is filled with 450 prophets of Baal. And so Elijah decided it was time for a showdown. And so he invited all the prophets of Baal and he said, here's how this is going to work. You're going to make a sacrifice and I'm going to make a sacrifice. And then he makes this statement. Listen, the God who answers by fire, he is God. The God who answers by fire. And so here's all these prophets of Baal and they've made this sacrifice and they begin to march around the sacrifice and they pray and they plead with God and God's not answering. And so they're harming themselves. And then Elijah begins to mock them. You've got to read this. Elijah says, maybe your God has gone to relieve himself, which means maybe your gods have gone to the bathroom and that's why they're not hearing you. I mean, he's, on, he's just mocking them endlessly. It's a wonderful justification for mocking people. So he, he begins to mock them. 
That's actually not true. But he begins to mock them and make fun of them. And, and there's nothing happening. They're pleading for their guys to do something and nothing. And then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah takes buckets of water and he pours it over his altar. Just so everyone can know there is no possible way this could ever be lit on fire. Bucket after bucket of water until the altar is soaked. And there's water all around the altar. And then Elijah prays, God, would you make yourself known? This generation needs to see the fire of your presence. God, this generation is being led astray by all of these false gods. God, would you in this moment in front of this entire generation make yourself known? And the fire of God descends from heaven and consumes the entire altar and licks up all of the water that is there. Even the water was soaked up by the fire. The water did not extinguish the fire. The fire took up the water. And everyone knew in that moment that God was there, that God was real. And then Elijah leaves and slaughters the 450 prophets of Baal. It's awesome there at the end. So great. And the people repent. Why? Because God showed up. And all the way from Genesis, all the way through the people's journey with God, God would make himself visible through fire. Now it's interesting, after 1 Kings 18, you don't see as much fire as you used to. And the reason is, is because the people's heart began to grow cold and they begin to worship other gods and they begin to be unfaithful to the Lord. And as a consequence of their sin, God's presence was no longer with them. God removed his presence from his people. But during those days, the most beautiful thing happened. The prophets continued to get visions of fire. You could read through almost every one of the prophets and you'll see some vision about fire. And you might wonder, why is there all this vision of fire? It's because God was saying to the prophets, someday I will bring the fire back. Someday I'll restore the fire of my presence. Someday. And one of the most beautiful examples of that is in Joel chapter 2. And so in Joel chapter 1, there's all of this image of fire. And in Joel chapter 2, there's all this image of fire. And listen to what it says at the end of Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Listen to this, Joel 2.30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is a vision that one day the fire would return. And then just a few pages over, you see the last chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi 4. The last chapter of the Old Testament. Listen to what it says. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Listen to this promise. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. That's S-U-N. Sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And here's another prophecy of someone else that could come. There could have been any prophet that was named here, but it wasn't any prophet. It was this one. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet of fire. 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts and fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament ends with, with none of the fire of God's presence. They had missed the fire of God's presence. But the promise that someday this sun of righteousness, this, this blazing righteousness is going to come. And then you go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist's father prays. And he is aware in that moment that his son is going to be the Elijah, the God of fire that is promised. And he would come to prepare the way for the son, S-U-N, of righteousness who would come. And Luke 1 says, Jesus is the son of righteousness. Jesus is the blazing splendor of God's glory who has come. And so in the coming of Jesus, once again, the fire has come. The fire has come in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That now the fire of God's presence has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And John 1 says, we have in Christ beheld the glory of God. It says in John 1.14 that Jesus was going to come to tabernacle, to dwell among us. And the significance of that is not only that God has come, but the very fire that filled the tabernacle and the very fire that filled the temple is now the fire that is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. All of the evidence of God's presence now met in the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Jesus is now the fire of God's presence. And we do behold his glory. We, we see the glory of his presence in the way that he treats people and the way he loves and the fact that he is full of grace and truth and we see it in every meal he has and with every lost person he touches. But the truth is, the fire of his presence and the glory of his presence is veiled in greater degree because of his flesh. Because Jesus came in the flesh as a servant, a suffering servant, and the reason he had to do this is because the only means of us, any of us experiencing God's presence, is for Jesus to come and be the mediator that can get us beyond the flaming swords back into the presence of God. And so what Jesus did is he bore the wrath of God that we deserved. So upon the cross, with all the wrath for our sins, the outpouring of that wrath was put upon Jesus Christ. So now, as a result of his death, we might come directly into the presence of God and know the fire ourselves. That's why 1 Peter 3.8 says that Jesus came to bring us back to God. John the Baptist said something really incredible. As he was preparing the way for Jesus, he said this. He said, there's someone who's going to come that is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and fire. The son of righteousness is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus made all of these promises that someday the Spirit of God was going to come. In John 14 and 15 and 16, he continues to give him this promise and you wonder, well, how is it that Jesus is going to baptize us with fire? And what does that mean? I, I, many times in my life, I've read that passage and I've thought, God, I don't know what that means, but I want it. I want, <laughs> whatever that baptism with fire is, I'll take it. 
But it wasn't until recently that I began to understand that the fulfillment of that promise was Acts chapter 2. Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize you with fire. What does that mean? That means he is going to give you his presence. That his presence will not only be in a place that you can come and visit. His presence will dwell inside of his people. You will be baptized with the presence of God. And in Acts chapter 2 it happens. When the fire of God's presence descends upon his people in the Holy Spirit. And so the way in which we are baptized with fire is at the moment in which we are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. And as we continue to seek the Holy Spirit and seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we are being baptized with the fire of his spirit. And so all of that glorious fire that came down from heaven, generation after generation, generation, has now come down and rested, listen to me, in your heart. In your heart. We look at Elijah and we say, God, I want that. I want the fire to come down. I want to see the fire of your presence to which God said, it has. It came. It's in your heart. God's vision is that your heart be ablaze with his presence, be consumed with the fire of his presence. God has created you and saved you that you might be filled with his Holy Spirit and the very fire of God's presence seen moment by moment by moment in the Old Testament now rests inside your heart. Being filled with the Spirit is nothing less than being filled with the fire of God's presence. But I want to make this connection with the church. And so I want you, as we close today, go to Revelation chapter 1. Go to Revelation 1. And so we see in Acts 1, fire of God's presence coming upon individual people by his spirit. And one of the reasons Revelation 1 is so important is because we tend to have an outdated view of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is no longer a suffering servant? He was, but he is no longer. Jesus is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father above all rule and power and authority and dominion. Jesus is now ruling and reigning over all things. He is the king of kings. And so if the only vision you get of Jesus is Jesus hanging on the cross, you have an outdated view of Jesus. Do you need to see him that way? Yes, to be saved. But in order to be the person God has called you to be every single day, you must get a renewed picture of Jesus in all of his glory. That's what Revelation 1 does. Look at this. It gives us two pictures. The first one is in verses 12 through 16. Listen. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. By the way, just when you think of lampstands, think of a bowl like this that's somehow lifted up on a stand. It's a bowl, and it just has flaming fire coming out of it. Think about an Olympic torch or something. There's just fire coming out. There's these seven lampstands. There's fire all around the room. And in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of all the fire, so there's fire all the way around. And in the midst of that is one like a son of man. It's Jesus. And he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes, listen, were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a vision of Jesus on fire. His feet are on fire. His eyes are on fire. His hair is on fire. He's holding stars of fire in his hand. He appears like the sun, listen to this, shining in full strength. 
That's Jesus on fire. That's a vision of Jesus as the fullness of the presence of God blazing with glory. That's Jesus. You want an updated picture of Jesus? That's Jesus ablaze with the glory of God. But there is not only a picture of Jesus on fire, there is a picture, listen next, of the church on fire. Verses 17 and following, look at that. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the beauty of this. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that, are, uh, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And look at this, Revelation 1.20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, the fire that was surrounding Jesus, the fire that Jesus is in the midst of, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now you've got to get this. Some little kid came up to me at Wednesday night dinner and made fun of me for saying this, but I'm going to say it again. If you're with me, say amen. He literally walked right up to me and goes, if you're with me, say amen. I need to know you're with me. Listen. So it's just fire of God's presence, fire of God's presence, fire of God's presence. The fire descending upon individual people in the Holy Spirit. Jesus ablaze with glory. And what Revelation 1 tells us is this. Listen to this. The church of Jesus Christ now is the holder of the fire of God's presence. All we've ever wanted is the fire of God's presence. Like we just, God, would you come? And we want to see those days of Elijah. Like we, we want to see the fire of your presence. We want to meet you. To which God says, I am making myself known through the fire of my presence in the local church. The local church exists to be the holder of the presence of God. And there is no other place in which God's presence is dwelling but the ministry of the local church. Like there is no room for a small view of the church. The church is the holder of the very presence of God. Like this is why a church exists. And I'm not just talking about the church. Prince Avenue Baptist Church exists to be a holder of the fire of God's presence so that this community might be set ablaze by his presence through the ministry of this church. This is why when you get to Revelation 3, Jesus is disgusted to the point of throwing up by the church in Laodicea because they don't have the fire of God's presence. They've lost the fire. They're a lukewarm church because they love so many other things. They have so much wealth. They have so much comfort. They have so many other gods. There are so many things fighting for their attention that somehow they have missed the significance of the church. And so instead of being a church ablaze with the presence of God, they are a church filled with lukewarm hearts and God is disgusted. Why? Because he's created us to be nothing less than the blazing holder of God's fiery presence that's that's what we do that's what the church is this is god's vision for the church the way that god has chosen to make himself visible is through the ministry of the local church someone asked me a couple of weeks ago i'll close with this well what does it look like when god's presence shows up like you keep talking about God's presence in the church and God, what does that look like? The best example I have for that is, is again at the end of Acts 2. Because at the end of Acts 2, it says this about the church. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the church on fire. And the reason we know that's the church on fire is because we have the church having just received the fire. Now here's the problem I see. There's a lot of churches that want to be the church on fire of the end of Acts 2, but they don't want the spirit that it requires at the beginning of Acts 2. Oh God, we just want to be the church where all these things are happening. People being saved day by day to which the Lord says, the means by which you get there, listen, is individual members of the church being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I have this little principle I teach to men that the temperature of a man's heart to a great degree determines the temperature of a man's home. I think it's true in a a large degree to the church, the temperature of a pastor's heart determines the temperature of a church. I think there's something supernatural about that, which makes me really want to walk in holiness. But let me just say something. The reality is the only way that we will be the church that God has called us to be is if we individually get serious about being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Like we just say, God, we don't want the pride anymore. We don't want the sin. We don't want the addiction. We don't all of, want all of those things that are quenching the fire of God's presence. God, we surrender ourselves fully to you. All we want is to be on fire with your presence. And when that happens to individuals, that begins to happen to the church as a whole. And we end up being the church that God has called us to be. And any vision less than that is a vision of the church that is way too small. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.